I'm Dr. Omar Khan. I'm Dr. Shannon Gowland. I'm Dr. Tiffany Dursey. And welcome to Vet Sessions. Welcome back to Vet Sessions. I'm your host, Dr. Shannon Gallen, and with me is Dr. Amy Thompson, otherwise known as Toothy Thompson, our mobile veterinary dentist in the area. So she has kindly um, joined us to talk about feline resorptive lesions. So last time we focused a little bit more on diagnosis um, of feline resorptive lesions, and then this episode we're going to finish that conversation and also talk a little bit more about extraction and closing those delicate gingival flaps. So thanks very much for joining us then you'll be able to better dissect what we're talking about here. So um, so let's talk about some uh, um, other techniques. So let's say that we are going to extract um, one of these multi-rooted teeth. Um, what steps do we take first to do that extraction? Yeah, absolutely. So the biggest thing is having... Um, good visualization Mm -hmm. so um so 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 important to be able to see what you're doing um one of my mentors used to say with kitty cats um we've got 30 tiny patients um that we're having to deal with so (laughs) if you think of the size of each of your patients it's really small um so i'm a i'm a huge fan of magnification and light um i always work with my loops and my light. Um, I'm pretty useless without it. Um, So keeping in mind that you really want to be able to see what you're doing. So making a nice, large um, mucoperiosteal flap is going to be so, so helpful. Um, That's the number one thing I think I get. I often see some some wide eyes, maybe even a gasp um, when Mm -hmm. I started my practice or the first time I go into a practice is how large my flaps are. Um, And that might be a bit because like as people get advanced in their space, we've got these little key whole space which I have the utmost respect that was never my 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 virtue maybe that's why I went into dentistry but um we just you have to be able to see what you're doing um and can make a big difference so making a large mucoperiosteal flap um to start which I know is a bit nerve-wracking um in feline tissue they're very small um and very fragile I think were we talking about this earlier? Like wet tissue paper. Yeah, um, like that's the perfect description. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's the perfect description of canine or um, feline gingiva mucosa. And so I would say to help with that sounds a bit counterintuitive, but to make sure that the your initial instruments when you're making your flap are really sharp, okay. so that we don't tear. Um, and so the biggest struggle I feel like a lot of people have, whether it's with cats or dogs in making their flaps, is that we're not getting a full thickness incision to start. Um, So getting right down to that bone. And if we can get right down to the bone, once we reach for a periosteal elevator, we're actually peeling that periosteum or that fibrous layer off the bone. And that's going to help protect the mucosa, which is mostly elastin, so really stretchy, not very strong. Um, So that is really helpful. And then the other thing that I do, and you can do with a periosteal elevator if it's really sharp, I often will use my small 15 blade. And all again, hard with the podcast because yeah. I'm, I'm hand, I'm hand talking right yeah. now. You're showing um, me right yeah. now, but nobody can see. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So taking that blade and running it 
parallel to the long axis of the tooth and just almost a little stab incision at the base of the sulcus that's the junctional epithelium and that's probably the strongest attachment and so i find if we don't incise that we're trying to overcome that really strong fiber because the gingiva has got a lot of collagen it's sort of like the the workhorse or the the strong the strong part um that we're trying to overcome versus the mucosa and so we put a lot of force to get through that and then we get through that and we're into mucosa so that's almost no collagen all elastin and then we tear the flap yeah and we've got such a small amount it's so precious yeah um so those are my is is right from the beginning is getting that scalpel blade and making your full thickness release right down to the bone and just a little little very gentle very purposeful i guess um incision into the junctional epithelium to sort of make sure that we're not having to kind of strong arm or arm wrestle with those gingival fibers and just really peeling that uh, periosteum off the bone. Okay. Okay. Mm-hmm. That sounds really good. And then what about, um, so then once we get our, our flap, then what? Great question. So I like to start with either like a small round or pear burr. I was trained where we were trained, we use pear burrs, but round burrs, it's all really the same, but you want something that round pear shape, um, burr in a kitty cat, something pretty small, like a one round, or if you use pear burrs, a 329, um, and putting (laughs) that in. And then, um, this is where sometimes I, I, I feel like I sound a bit like a yoga instructor, but you want to become one with the burr and you want to let the burr do the work. Love so it. you don't want to force it. You don't want to force it. It's actually easier to cut bone than it is to cut tooth. And so that can be helpful um, sometimes when we can't see the a big difference between those tissues. Um, so you want to hold your high speed handpiece really close up to the end so you have a good tactile feel. Um, and then you want the burr to be... Um, along the long axis um, of the uh, root, so not coming in perpendicular because it's easier to kind of gouge into that root Mm, and weaken it. Um, And then we just paint. So very gently, I'm not putting any force. I often just use my thumb and index finger to hold it. um, So I'm not putting force down. And I just, I start where I can see the crown so I don't get off course and just very gently strokes back and forth. And again, kind of let, let the bird do the work. Don't force it. Um, and then as far as how much bone to remove, a lot of factors come into play. So if it's say a younger patient, um, that has like a nice cushy periodontal ligament space, you know, like a a new brake pad, that's got a lot of cushion (laughs) to it. Um, I, I may need to remove less bone because I can kind of stretch that ligament. You know, if it's a, an older cat or if there's significant tooth resorption, that's weak in the root, I'll take a little bit more. I don't have a nice squishy periodontal ligament space. So when people ask how much bone to remove, I say just enough to get it out. Um, (laughs) So I mean, a rule of thumb, somewhere around 25, 30%, knowing that once I reach for my other instruments, if, you know, I start trying to elevate and nothing's happening, I can always remove more bone. I often say dentistry is the definition of insanity. We keep doing the same thing over (laughs) and over and over again and expecting that tooth to pop out. Um, So being patient at the same time as not spending 10, 15 minutes on the same thing. Um, So removing that bone and then um, finding the right size winged elevator. So it's a bit like Goldilocks. We want to find the perfect size. So the the whole goal of that um, 
uh, winged elevator is you want it to fit really snug around that tooth root. So it's really, it should be fitting between the alveolar bone and the tooth root in that periodontal ligament space. So if we have one that's too small, it'll fit, but when we turn it, it'll start to chip away at mm-hmm. the tooth root instead of just stretching the ligament. Um, so having several different sizes, especially in kitty cats, there's such a wide range in size of tooth if you compare an incisor yes. to a canine. So have having different sizes um and then essentially ideally we get the winged elevator wedged in that you could actually potentially let go of it and it will sit between the bone and the tooth that normally indicates we've got a good fit um and then to prevent any injury or fatigue for us the operator um relax deep breath um and then really it is um a rotation of your wrist so you're you're rotating um that winged elevator you're not using excessive force to get that tooth out. Um, Other thing I often share is if anyone was ever wondering why you had to take physics to go to vet school, Uh it is dental extractions. (laughs) So (laughs) being mindful of how can you get a maximum force right on those periodontal ligament fibers without putting too much force on the tooth or the bone. Um, And a lot of that comes down to getting the perfect fit with your winged elevator and then using that rotation. Okay. No, mm-hmm. those are, that's really great information in terms of technique for sure. Yeah. I, I had a, a pinched nerve in my neck way, way back in my uh, general practitioner days because I was trying to use too much force. So um, I like to talk about that as much as I can because I don't want anyone, you know, getting injured doing the, doing this job. For sure. Mm-hmm. For sure. And we also don't want to injure our patients either. Absolutely. Yeah, for sure. And then, so it sounds like you like winged elevators, which I also love. Uh, what about Luxators, other types of equipment? Do you have anything else that you like to use? or is it mostly the wing, about the winged elevator? Yeah, so I definitely, um, all my extraction kits have um, one through four size winged elevators. Um, they're my go-to, although there's certain um, situations where I do like luxators. So I use the winged elevators like we were just describing with um, vertical elevation. I am a huge fan of horizontal elevation, which okay. is a little Tell different technique. Yeah, so I like this one. Um, I learned about it, then kind of forgot about it, and then like reignited my love for it in my residency by one of my mentors and so essentially instead of having that winged elevator have be the perfect fit along that route um, what you do is you start with your smallest winged elevator and you're gonna um, instead of being um, parallel to the long axis of that route you're gonna go perpendicular so you're actually gonna wedge that winged elevator between two two roots two teeth or multi-rooted teeth where you've sectioned them And then once you've kind of put that down in there and you get the winged elevator wedged in sort of as apical as you can down into the base, you're just going to, and oftentimes you only need to use your thumb and index finger just to rotate it. And what's going to happen is that winged edge of the elevator is going to catch on the cervical bulge or the the bulge of the crown right before we go into root. And what that's going to do, which is really cool, and again, more physics, is it's going to pull up. And so it's going to really strain those um, periodontal ligament fibers at the apex, which is where they're most concentrated. Um, so that's nice. The other nice thing is that you're um, stretching the ligament on two roots instead of one. So it's going to uh, increase your efficiency. Yeah. Um, and last but certainly not least, we always want to have a short stop finger grip on our equipment. However, slips can happen. So in a horizontal position, if you slip, um, much less dangerous than if you, to our patient, 
than if you slip in a vertical situation. So I tend to use my winged elevators unless I'm removing like one tooth, single root tooth all by itself. I generally am always going for horizontal. Um, Gonna, like I said, increase efficiency. It's a bit of a different feel. So you can't put as much torque on because your force is is higher up and not as apical, um, but increases your efficiency, um, less risk. Um, So I definitely like that. Um, so that's a, that's a different way to use the winged elevators. And then I will, um, reach for my luxators if I'm dealing with canine teeth, um, either permanent or I really like small luxators for persistent deciduous canines. Mm, okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Thank so you. I don't have to u- remove as much bone. Um, and because I don't have, um, something else to leverage off of. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, that makes a lot of sense. Okay. Thank you. Uh, do you have any tips to help us kind of avoid fracturing the roots? You already talked about kind of not using a lot of force mm-hmm. and I definitely hear you there <laughs> and being patient mm-hmm. and that can be hard, you know, when you've been working with a tooth for a little bit, mm-hmm. but what else, what else can you tell us about not fracturing these very delicate tooth roots? Yes. Yes. So I think, yeah, Patience is helpful. So, you know, uh, one thing I feel like we get really in the groove and we're kind of wiggling back back and forth and um, just remembering that the parallel ligament is designed to handle that that quick movement back and forth Mm -hmm. because of the forces of mastication. Um, So sometimes I sing the Jeopardy song in my head um, Uh just to try and slow myself down, give myself time. And then I just come back to, and again, kind of taking a big step back, is one of the things I find really helpful helpful with um, loops or magnification. One, I can see my little patients better. I can also see small movements. And so if I'm starting to see movement, I'll keep going with that. So if I'm doing horizontal elevation, um, for instance, I'll I'll rotate um, sort of clockwise and then I'll go counterclockwise. And if I'm seeing some movement, I might step up to my next winged elevator. If I've, you know, say even just a minute of putting pressure on that, you know, 20 seconds, 20 seconds, 20 seconds, and there's no movement, I'll go back and grab my burr and remove more bone. Um, because when we really try and get, you know, too much movement too quickly, that's often because, you know, we haven't freed things up and, and there hasn't been. So I like to preserve as much bone as we can, um, but not at the expense of, you know, spending, you know, a half hour on a tooth, right? So it's that fine balance of preserving bone, but also being mindful again, like we talked at the top of the episode is our patients are under anesthesia. So while we don't want to rush anything, we also want to be mindful of how long that takes. So I would say never be afraid to go back and take more bone. Um, even if you've already taken your your first bit of bone, you can always go back um, and take more. And sometimes changing things up, like if I feel like I'm not getting much movement with a winged elevator, then I may grab um, a luxator um, to say, you know, I'm not getting much stretch of the ligament, so I'm going to use my luxator to cut the ligament. So okay. um, sometimes changing things up, or maybe my angle is just not quite right, just kind of reassessing what we're doing. Okay. Mm -hmm. That sounds really good. As Mm -hmm. opposed to getting impatient, creating too much force on it and snapping it. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Which unfortunately is easy to do. Very easy to do in kitty cat teeth for sure. For Mm -hmm. sure. Okay. So how about closing those gingival flaps that those pieces of wet tissue paper, it seems, uh, Mm -hmm. is such delicate tissue to get closed. Mm -hmm. So I was wondering if you have any tips and tricks for us, uh, me and us. Yes. Yes. So again, yeah, that, that wet tissue paper is really difficult to work with. So the number one thing I would say, and this 
is from like a junior surgery, I think way, way back is being very mindful of, of how many times you touch the tissue and with what. Mm. So I have forceps in my kits. I very rarely reach for them um, because every time we touch that tissue with forceps, we can cause inflammation, but also it can tear. Like it is, it really is, you know, uh, you, you, you hit the nail on the head. It really is like wet tissue paper. If we need to use forceps, something atraumatic. So definitely something more like an Addison Brown, not like a rat tooth. And then remembering that the inside of the flap is where the fibrous tissue is. So grabbing that fibrous tissue or the periosteum instead of any gingiva mucosa. And then the other thing I think is super, super important is to release that periosteum. So we used Mm -hmm. it to help us lift the flap, but now we're going to stretch it and incise it because as I mentioned, the gingiva is very strong, lots of collagen, but very little elastin. So it doesn't stretch um, and we have to close a hole. So we want to utilize the elastin that's in the mucosa, which is super stretchy. So along the inside of that flap, you should be able to see um, sort of like a even it sometimes it's very mild difference, but um, that fibrous tissue and I'll use like a, it's called a Lagrange scissor, which is sort of like a curved iris scissor. And that allows me to just blunt dissect. So I'll use kind of the tip of the scissor to try and get in between the periosteum. And then once you stretch that, you'll, you'll, a lot of people are quite amazed if you haven't already done that at how much that flap will fold over without any tension. Um, and that's, that's one of the big things in, in any oral surgery extractions or otherwise is tension's the enemy because we cannot keep it clean, keep it dry and we can't rest it. So we can't do all the good things we normally like to do with surgery. So we definitely don't want any tension. Um, and I find when we don't have tension and we can just lay that flap down, then we don't need to pick that tissue up or hold it in place with forceps to then suture it. Um, so I do find it helps with us doing the suturing, but then also as far as healing and, and, and significantly reduce the risk of dehiscence. For sure. So you're mm-hmm. actually dissecting the flap off of that periosteum, essentially. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. Perfect. Yeah, to just utilize that that elasticity we have in the mucosa so that the gingival will come up over top of that empty alveolus now um, mm-hmm. and sit without any tension. Um, and then, you know, some things... I think it's easy. Sometimes we forget the basics, but really working with the curvature of the needle. For sure. Um, and I use a taper needle, so I don't use even reverse cutting. Um, so the reverse cutting has the cutting surface, as I'm sure you know, on the outside surface versus the inside, because the regular cutting often will pull through because we're working oh, yeah. in tiny little spaces and we're kind of pulling up. So I like to use exclusively a taper needle in kitty cats. Um, and then the other thing I like, so that'll have a smaller hole from that taper needle versus a reverse cutting or cutting. And then the other tip I learned along the way is actually using my needle drivers to hold the suture so that it goes through at a 90 degree angle. Um, instead of coming up and out Um, because even though we're using monofilaments they're still almost like with that really especially if it's inflamed and again it's like tissue paper it's so soft it's easy to tear so um, we can almost get almost like a bit of a giggly wire effect even with a monofilament suture if we're kind of pulling up and so just uh, even like a, a pinky finger or you know an instrument or a needle driver or something on either side so that even if you're working in a, in a tight space and you have to kind of pull up and out you know at least a couple millimeters on either side of the gingiva that 
suture is straight at a 90. And so mm. then we're, we've got a, we don't have any bigger of a hole, less risk of it tearing. So I found that to be quite helpful. That sounds great. So you're just supporting the gingiva there as you pull that suture through at the mm-hmm. angle. Okay, mm-hmm. that sounds great. And then do you like like 5-0 monocryl? What's your, yeah, okay. Yeah, 5-0 yeah. is my go-to. So for kitty cats and small dogs, I use 5-0. And then medium large dogs, I use um, 4-0. Okay, perfect. Mm-hmm. And then, okay, now we're finally done. Mm-hmm. Billy's, Billy's extraction sites are closed. We can heave that big sigh of relief. Everything yes. went well. deep breath. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So uh, what do you recommend after dental extraction? Yeah. So, so my biggest thing I often will tell owners, um, cause most owners are like, Oh, they gotta be on canned food and canned food's totally fine. I just find a lot of our pets are a little bit sensitive. And so if they've been eating the same kibble and then all of a sudden they have anesthesia and surgery and then we mm-hmm. change their diet. So I often am recommending soaking the kibble in warm okay. water um, because we don't really need like a puree per se, but we just want something that's going to be less irritating. Um, now, some cats and dogs are s- severely offended at the thought of being <laughs> fed soggy kibble. So sometimes yeah. that doesn't work out. Um, so having some canned food, ideally of the same sort of brand. So it's, it's similar enough. Um, and I tend to do it for about 10 to 14 days. Um, maybe a little bit longer than we need to, but I'm sort of of the better safe than sorry, Um, with the exception of young puppies. So with my persistent deciduous teeth, sometimes I'm seeing them as young as like nine, 10 weeks, sometimes 16 weeks. Them, I'm like maybe five to seven days. I mean, the wonders of being young, right? We heal so quickly Um, and trying to keep puppies with, you know, toys out of their mouth you know that's that's much harder than my job that's for sure so um kind of that those are sort of my rough um timelines and then of course no tug no toys things like that um because you know and I just explained to owners I mean I'm not trying to torture anyone it's just if they pop a stitch we can get exposed bone and that's where we run into infections if if we don't have dehiscence we don't have infections so it's just really trying to support the that incision until it can heal Okay. And then how soon do you recheck your patients after you um, perform dental extractions? Yeah, I generally do it about two weeks and sort of I give them things to watch for. So two weeks, as long as everything's going well, um, things I have them watch for um, is is preparing them that they will see a bit of blood tinge saliva. Absolutely. Um, And sometimes it looks like they're bleeding. And so I always um, tell them to just dab it with a tissue and it should look really watered down. It may look on your pet's uh, lip like, oh my gosh, they're gushing blood. And obviously that's not normal, but um, blood tinge saliva for at least a day or so, totally normal. It's the pro con of the oral cavity being so vascular is it heals quickly. um, But we will get a little bit of oozing and, and I, always make sure um with an oral nasal fistula to mention the same thing from the nose so that is totally normal for the first day or so and then beyond that if we see that or if it looks like when you wipe it's bright red blood though that's definitely abnormal um we normally will talk about and and sometimes have a bit of a giggle about their breath so Mm -hmm. i will say you know unlike any other surgical site we always want you to check it every day but with the oral cavity if we're lifting the lip or trying to look in the mouth we're putting tension on that so i actually tell owners please don't look in their mouth at all and a lot of owners say i don't want to (laughs) but i say you know please don't look but do you have a nice little sniff of their mouth um and there's always a giggle and i say if it starts to smell like it did when it came in that is 
not normal. Oh, so, interesting. Yeah, because they're they're idea. used to they're used to that you know halitosis or bad breath, and it, it's a bit of a different smell. Um, but but nor- but normally we can really pinpoint that as being different than the funky soaked kibble smell, which isn't super yeah. pleasant, but isn't nasty i guess it isn't unhealthy exactly gross in a healthy way exactly exactly so um so i say if you notice you know a foul odor coming back um if you notice any discharge from the mouth or if they if i found an oral nasal fissure during surgery they we may well we'll have some sneezing initially because of the surgery but if that starts to happen beyond the first day or so and or happens while they're eating or drinking or shortly thereafter, those would all be things I'd, I'd want to know about and see them sooner than the two weeks. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, that sounds really great. I love the smelling the mouth idea. That's mm-hmm. interesting. Nice big sniff. <laughs> yeah. Perfect. Perfect. And then how about dental home care for our cats? What do you yeah. generally recommend? Like once everything's all healed up and perfect and beautiful, mm-hmm. um, how do we maintain that? So toothbrushing is one yes. of my favorite, favorite things to talk about. Um, I'll never get tired of talking about it. Fantastic. Um, I love it. There's nothing better. So everything out there is compared to toothbrushing. Toothbrushing is our gold standard. Um, and I personally believe, and, and some may disagree with me, but um, if, you, if you've been on my socials or you've been in a clinic I've worked in or were at the UW when I did my residency, I don't take no for an answer. <laughs> um, I'm like, okay, why aren't we brushing? And, and oftentimes I find the number one reason I find owners don't brush is they tried it. It was wrestling with their pet. It was miserable and they stopped. Yep which I can appreciate because I don't want to negatively impact the bond that they have with their pet. However, I do have tips and tricks to help. Um, And the number one thing I find is that, which is totally what you would expect when you really think about it, is that owners are going to brush their pet's teeth like they brush their own. Oh, they've been yeah, brushing their sure. own teeth for their whole life, right? So they're going to brush all the surfaces of their teeth, which yes. is great because they know the benefit of it. Um, but a cat or dog is like, it's making me kind of gag because it's hitting my, the roof of my mouth and the tongue. And like, nobody wants that. And we can't explain it to them. So I often will ask, like, you know, was were they chewing on the, on the toothbrush? Like, what was happening that was making it so awful? And 99 times out of 100, that's what I'm getting back. And so that's where, when I was talking about doing the oral exam, is I I hold their mouth closed so that we're not going to hit the roof of the mouth. We're not going to hit the tongue. Um, And I just use the toothbrush to kind of hook in the the cheek um, and then slide that toothbrush in um, along the outside or buckle surfaces of the teeth. Um, And then uh, most dogs and cats even are quite... um, tolerant of it you know they may not love it but they're not you know batting away and and that kind of thing and uh and then the other thing is cavities um we don't see them in cats and they're super rare in dogs so unlike you and i where it's like okay brush and then no eating it's like brush and then give them a treat to make it a positive um reinforce that positively uh and i've had i have many personal dogs in my life but also many um clients that say like they know they know when it's toothbrush time because they get that special treat um and so if we can make it positive um i've had really great success um in good compliance with owners uh, about toothbrushing and um Yes, it's only the outside surfaces. And I would say once we get there, if we can get to what I call advanced brushing would be the inside surfaces with the caveat being if brushing the inside surfaces means it only happens once a week or once every other week, then just focus on the outside because we really need it to be daily to stay ahead of that biofilm and that 
calculus. And so I say, if you can do 364 of the outside services, I'll do the one day with all the nooks and crannies and on the inside. Um, And so that's sort of how we make the plan of daily toothbrushing and then annual cohats. Fantastic. Mm -hmm. And then what do you use to brush your teeth? Do you like the enzyme toothpaste? Do you have a flavor recommendation? Anything else? Mm -hmm. So that is pet dependent as well. So I personally liked the vanilla mint because it smells nice to me. I don't really like the beef chicken flavor, but I guess it's whatever's best for the pet. I've actually had owners brush with peanut butter before um, because really the bulk like the the majority of the benefit is the contact with the bristles with the tooth to break up that film basically um so while you know the enzymatic toothpaste can help um without that contact with the bristles it, it can't really do much yeah. so i um i've had pets where i use different toothpaste i've also had personal pets where we didn't because they were so distracted by the toothpaste it was yeah. just so we went i just um ran the toothbrush or the bristles underneath the the tap to soften them um and then they got the treat after and so uh you know a vet tooth toothbrush i actually have had a really small dog and so she had a pediatric toothbrush and you just make sure it's soft bristle um and you're on your way sounds great yeah Mm -hmm. so it's all about the bristles not about the toothpaste yes okay Mm -hmm. sounds really good okay amazing well we've covered a lot (laughs) thank you so much (laughs) yeah thank you we got to talk about this great topic um yeah i can't wait to try out some of the things you talked about for sure yay yeah you'll have to let me know how those go yeah yeah Mm -hmm. for sure so um so how can we get more information about these topics i know that you have partnered with dr appleby um to put Mm. some material on obivet tell me about that yeah so this is super awesome um so i was so honored um when dr appleby asked me um it's just a way to get information out obviously after the pandemic um not getting to conferences and and i do really enjoy sharing my knowledge because as i said there wasn't a lot out there um and i do not envy any of you in general practice there's so much to know i get to just stick to my you know the teeth (laughs) and mouth so i was so honored when he asked me so we put together um there's about nine hours of race approved um ce um it's all micro learning which i love that obivet does that so it's small bite size so it's not like you need to sit down for a full hour or two. There's like, you know, sometimes five minute, 15 minute sections with little quizzes at the end. Um, so we've got one on um, sort of general foundations where we'll talk about, you know, things like anatomy, the oral exam. So some of the stuff we talked about with differentiating between um, periodontitis and stomatitis, um, things like that is in there. Um, included in there is also um, regional nerve blocks. So I go through all the landmarks. There's some videos in there on how to do them. Uh, and then the other, the second three-hour course is all on periodontal disease. So it talks about diagnostic treatment, works through a bunch of cases. And then the last of the three three-hour courses is on radiology. So it focuses mostly on capturing the images. Um, but I find, you know, we learn about it and then it's, you know, we do it and we don't get an x-ray we like and then we're stuck. So my teaching approach is more on, okay, take the x-ray. We don't love it. But how do we go from a kind of sucky x-ray to like... I call a refrigerator x-ray when we want to put on the refrigerator. So focuses on that little bit of interpretation, but we're working on, or I'm trying to work on in, in midst of clinical practice is, um, interpretation, um, really focusing on interpreting those radiographs, um, and some other stuff like oral tumors and feline specific diseases. So hopefully lots more coming in the new year. 
Okay, perfect. And mm-hmm. we can access that by joining OBVET, OBI VET. Um, and then there's there's some free CE content on yes. the site and the, as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not sure whether your any of your content is is there, um, but there is some free content and then some um, some paid content as well. Yeah, so there's definitely some stuff I'm working on to be free. And also it's free for our students, which is pretty cool. Ooh, great. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Thank you very much. Yeah. Okay. So, um, and then how can our listeners uh, get more of your information? Um, I know you're very active on Instagram. Yeah, yeah. So that's sort of um, pre-OBVET. That was sort of how I was doing um, online education because, you know, we weren't going anywhere. So um, I'm toothy.thompson on Instagram. Uh, I try and share as much as I can, sort of cases I see. Um, I'm I'm very, which is funny because we're on a podcast, I'm the hand talker, right? Yeah. Um, I'm very visual, so I like to share a lot of videos and, um, and pictures. You know, I have fun with it, you know, some reels and things like that, but I try and share posts of um, clinical cases, um, do some quizzes on there. So um, definitely, if you're interested on um, more content, I, I do my best to keep on there regularly as I can. Um, so feel free to pop over there and give me a hello. Uh, and then for my mobile practice, I do also have uh, a website. It's geared towards referring DVMs. I'm still working on expanding that out into having you know handouts for pet owners. So that's on the docket as well. But Great. toothythompson.ca is my website. Okay. And then just for spelling for your last name. Oh, yes. So uh, so your Instagram feed is toothy, T-O-O-T-H-Y dot T-H-O-M-S-O-N. Yes. Perfect. And then your mobile practice is similar then. Yes. Okay. That's mm-hmm. great. Okay. Well, thank you so much for all of this information. I feel like we packed a lot into the podcast. So thank you. Thanks to our listeners as well for spending this time with us. So please email us if you have any suggestions for future podcasts. Our email is vetsessions at hotmail.com. Please follow us on Instagram at Vet Sessions. Take care and see you next time. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Bye. Bye.